pick up the word of God and we'll turn to the book of Ezra and chapter 3. So we're in the book of Ezra, chapter 3. And we'll, we'll read the chapter together. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and of every one that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon and to them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, began Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Henadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, They set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, uh, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers, who were ancient men, that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy, 
from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. So we end there at the end of the chapter. We trust the Lord to bless his word. It's particularly the second half of the chapter that we're looking at as we move on in the book today, from primarily from verse 8 and downward, and especially towards the latter part of the chapter. But let's um, bow in prayer just briefly. We'll seek the help of, the help of God. Uh, Lord, we do pray for thy spirit to take up the word, to minister it to our hearts. I pray for the enabling of the Holy Spirit that I need so as to proclaim your word in a manner that would bring forth fruit in our lives. Give power by the Spirit, then we ask. Speak, O Lord, and help us to rejoice in the gospel of Christ, even to behold afresh the Savior and to marvel at the goodness of thee, our God. Minister to meet the need, we pray, in the name of the Savior. Amen. Uh, By God's grace, something utterly remarkable has happened for the people of Israel. Uh, Everything had previously looked pretty hopeless. Uh, They'd been carried off into captivity, and their temple was gone. Their land was not in their possession. Everything was lost. But God had been faithful to his word, and remarkably, the new Persian emperor Cyrus had sent out his decree You who are the Lord's, you're free to go home. You're free to rebuild again the temple of God. Now, just think of the excitement as the people heard that proclamation, as they answered the call, and almost 50,000 people made their way home. But, of course, they, they haven't just gone home so as to set up their houses and to get on with normal life. One of the central tasks is that they might go home and rebuild again the fallen temple of God. Well, that time has now come, the time to rebuild the temple. Last week, we looked at the starting point for it all when, before even thinking about laying the foundation of the temple, Israel started with the basics. They set up the altar. They began to draw near to God on the very basis of sacrifice, the very heart of worship. Uh, Around that time, they started to prepare for the rest of the work too. According to verse 7, they sorted out wages for the masons, the carpenters. They sent off to the people of Tyre and Sidon to bring the best quality cedar wood from Lebanon. And obviously, all of that took a bit of time. So as you move into verse 8 now, time has gone by. It's now the, the second month of the second year from when Israel arrived in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, but Now the time has come, and the actual temple construction can begin. Many years earlier, that temple had been brought down to the dust. The work of God had looked finished. But now God has done great things. The people are back in their land, and it's a time for rebuilding and for restoration. Zerubbabel and Joshua, the appointed people, got the work going. In verse 10, it says that the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. Now, obviously, the whole thing isn't built yet. It doesn't look like much so far. It's just a foundation. But it's a start. The foundation is laid. The rebuilding, the restoration of the things of God has begun. And what a, what a scene you get here as the people are gathered together around this new temple foundation. And there's music sounding out. There is Praise being offered up, there are tears being shed, all as the people respond to the remarkable 
things that God has accomplished and to the fact that there is a temple foundation that has been laid. It's primarily this response of the people that we want to look at today. The response as the people contemplate this new beginning, this restoration that God was bringing about. So we're thinking today about the response to God's restoration. The response to God's restoration. And the first thing, and this will be where we spend most of our time today, is the response of praise and thanksgiving. There's the response of praise and thanksgiving. The the major focus of verses 10 and 11 and a little bit after is praise. It's thanksgiving to the Lord. Uh, When the builders laid this new foundation... The people set the priests in their appropriate clothing with their trumpets. There's the sons of Asaph with their symbols, all in accordance with how David had established things long ago. The appropriate people are tasked to lead in the songs of praise. And then in verse 11, they they sang together. And it wasn't just the Levites and priests, the, the particular appointed singers that are making noise, but All the people were involved. All the people are shouting with a great shout. They're making a loud noise as they join together to praise the Lord. You know, we should stress that God's people are to be a praising people. When you think of what God has done for us, we've got every reason to be a people full of praise, certainly for those who know Christ and know God's salvation. When God saves us, we can say with David in Psalm 40, verse 2 he, and 3, he, he brought me up out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock. He established my goings. He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. That, that's how it ought to be. If we know the grace of God, if we know his saving, restoring work in our lives, it should, respond, it should result in a, a new song. In our mouth, a new song you could say in our heart that comes out of the mouth, a new song that delights in the Lord, that exalts the Lord, that praises the God who has done so much for us. Well, here's Israel. God has done great things for them. They, they have been brought back to their own land. They see the beginnings of his renewing work as the temple goes up, or starts to, and they respond with this praise and thankfulness. Now, I want you, first of all, to think about the, the reason for Israel's praise. Obviously, in terms of their circumstances, it's a time of celebration when great things have been accomplished. They're back in their own land. The temple foundation is laid. But if you look at verse 11, notice the central theme that Israel is singing about. They, they give thanks to God in praise because, and here's the reason, Because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. Here's the reason for praise. God is good, his mercy endureth forever. Now that's that's in keeping with a number of of the Psalms, which emphasize the very same sentence even, or, or something very close to it. We were singing from Psalm 100 earlier. And there God's people are urged to enter into his courts with thanksgiving and with praise. It says, for God is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endureth to all generations. Uh, Psalms 106, 107, 118, and 136 all begin by calling for praise and thankfulness on this basis. 
He is good. His mercy endureth forever. Now, whenever you think about that theme, that that reason for praise, recognize it's grounded in the very character of our God. It's it's all flowing out of who God actually is. He is good. This is who he is. He is good. His mercy endureth forever. Now, whenever we start to think about our God, it's important to start by recognizing that we are not God's judge, not in the slightest. Our God is the infinite one. We are the creatures of the dust. We answer to him, not the other way around. Who are we to put God on trial? And I say that because if, if therefore, the God of all things was a tyrant, if he was cruel and malicious, we might not like it. But if that was the case, we still would have no grounds to complain. That would just be our reality. The God who made all things and who made us is cruel and malicious. That's just how it is. We just get on with it. He's, he's God. We can't say anything about it. Of course, if God was a cruel tyrant, what a different existence we would have. If God, the sovereign ruler who can do all as he pleases with you, he can do all things, if he should be cruel and malicious, well then your existence and mine would be utterly miserable. And I mean that utterly miserable. You know, here is in itself a wonderful reason for thankfulness and for praise. Our God is not cruel and corrupt. He is good. He is good. Now, now think of the importance of God's goodness. It's important, first of all, when you think about his kindness, his, his benevolence, because he is good. He's kind. He, he deals with benevolence, toward his creation. I mean, think of the, even the common expressions of God's goodness toward us all. Psalm 145 verse 9 says that the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. That same psalm goes on to say in verses 14 through 16, the Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. You know, we have a God who in goodness provides for every living thing as he kindly rules over the affairs of this world. <coughs> in Matthew 5 verse 44, Christ tells his people that we're to be good even to those who are bad to us. And it's so that we might be children of our Father, because he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. God is good, and good to all, even in these common mercies. Uh, now, what a, di- what a difference if God was a cruel tyrant, and at any moment, perhaps, he, he would play the, the great trick on us, and maybe gravity is suspended, and we flew, up, flew off into space. Just, just to amuse our cruel God. Now, I know that sounds laughable, but let's face it, if God was cruel, who knows what terrors he could bring upon us just, just arbitrarily, just for the fun of it. But he deals well with us because he's good. Of course, we do recognize that there's pain and suffering in the world. That might not automatically square with the goodness of God in your mind, but the Bible does explain the reason for all the pain and suffering. It, it comes about due to the brokenness that, that we have introduced uh, by our sin. Uh, before sin was in the world, 
Such was the goodness of God that all things were made well, perfectly well. All was very good so that we were finding ourselves in a world where we can truly be blessed abundantly, where all that we need is provided, where there is true peace and and blessedness and contentment. The, the, The sorrows of this life only come about when we rebelled against our God. In fact, there's a sense in which you could say that even the pains and the sorrows, the hardships of this world, even they flow out of the goodness of God. See, another way in which you can think of the goodness of God is in his righteous dealings, his, his justice, his righteousness, his opposition to sin. But when we think about goodness, sometimes we think only about dealing kindly and gently with everyone. But, but goodness also involves a, an appropriate hatred of that which is evil and wicked. You know, if a judge is to be good, well then, he needs to hate that which is corrupt and he needs to punish it. Or, to take the the arena of discipline, if a a father is to be a good father, he needs to hate the sins in the life of his child and therefore he needs to try and correct them before it's too late. That's part of being good as a father. Goodness automatically makes you opposed to badness. Well, because God is good... He's opposed to that which is bad. He's opposed to sin. And, you know, even the sorrows of this life flow out of the goodness of God who chastens it, who judges sin. He, he cursed the ground for man's sake because he is good and because sin needs to be chastened. Because we need to learn that an existence of rebellion against God is not healthy. It's not good. God is good. So he comes against sin. He corrects it. And he, he deals with rebellion. Now, of course, because he's good, that causes problems for us, since by nature we are not good. We're born in sin, shape and in iniquity. We, we find ourselves on the wrong side of God's goodness. We find ourselves exposed to his justice, his, his opposition to sin. But, of course, in the gospel, such is the goodness of God that there is a way for, of dealing with all of our badness through Christ, and God can make us righteous and good in his sight. But even if you set aside the gospel for a moment, not that that's ever wise, but appreciate that a world ruled by the principle of justice is much better, infinitely better than one where corruption and wickedness run rampant. In recent times, some of the major cities in America have been trialing a system where they go very light on crime. They don't seem to be prosecuting shoplifting, for example, and people can get away quite easily with just walking into shops and just very openly, publicly taking stuff. I saw a video the other day of someone, I think he was burning a, uh, burning his way in through a plastic casing to steal something, and everyone's just standing looking and no one challenging it. And you get away with the crimes and there's going to be no penalty and the result is the exact opposite of utopia. You know, shops increasingly have to close their doors and move away from the areas. They can't afford to run their business. Society just descends into chaos. A lack of justice just results in misery. You know, there is a real comfort for the oppressed and the afflicted in this world that God is good. That he's a God of justice. He's good and therefore he will deal with that which is bad. The God of all the earth is good, and therefore he'll put things right. One of the major themes of celebration in the book of Psalms is the justice of God. He's coming to judge the world. He's coming to bring justice to this world, and that's good. Sin and misery and corruption, it won't be allowed to go on forever, because God is good. So 
The goodness of God means that he deals benevolently, kindly with all his creation. It means that he deals righteously and justly with wickedness. But also the goodness of God does express itself in terms of his mercy. You'll see here in verse 11, the people praise God because he is good. And here's the chief explanation of his goodness for his his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. Now, I said a moment ago, the, the goodness of God poses a major problem for us because we are not good by nature. God is good, but you and I aren't. And yet, God's goodness, thankfully, is also expressed in terms of this remarkable mercy. What a, what a need we have for a merciful God. Israel were undoubtedly very well aware of that when they sang this praise of the Lord. They should never have expected a day like this one, where they find themselves back in the promised land, where they find the foundation of the temple being laid again, and there's hope for a revived work of God in their midst. They should never expect something like this. Israel had been carried off into exile, and it wasn't just because of some political happenings in the world. It wasn't just because the Babylonians had become powerful and greedy and conquered them. Their own sin, their own rebellion against God is what led to their ruin. Had Israel been walking with God in past days, no power on earth or in hell could have shaken them from the promised land. Nothing. You might think about the days of Hezekiah. The the mighty kingdom in those days was the Assyrian Empire. That was the scary force that no one could withstand. The Assyrian Empire had come in. They conquered Israel, northern Israel, carried them off into captivity. Northern Israel had been living in rebellion against God for a long, long time. and, And now God dealt with them. The Assyrians were able to carry them away. But Assyria also came against Judah at that time. Judah in the south. And they besieged Jerusalem. And again, everything looked hopeless. Surely the same thing is going to happen to Judah. But there's a difference. Judah had a king who was walking with God. King Hezekiah, you might know the account where he receives the threatening letter from the Assyrians. And he, what does he do with it? He takes it and he spreads the letter out before the Lord. And he prays and God hears his prayer. And God struck the Assyrian army. They were destroyed. That, that mighty enemy had to go away with their tail between their legs. Judah was walking with God, and God kept them. They weren't going to be shaken. No power on earth could have moved them from the promised land that God had given them. The sad reality is that when they went into exile, it was entirely due to their own sin. It was all their own fault. They had no one to blame but themselves. They were guilty. Now, in light of that horrible history, why do they find themselves again in the promised land? Why is the foundation of the temple being laid once more? Why do they still have hope? The only answer is that God is merciful and his mercies endure forever. As Israel laid the foundation that day and there's this revived hope among the people, it's extremely obvious to them. God is good His mercies endure. Our sins have been great, but God's mercy is greater. In fact, it endures forever. Now, now God has not changed. 
Today, he is still good. Thankfully, today, his mercies still endure forever. And how you and I need that, because having been brought into God's good world by the goodness of God, and having gone on to live lives that are not good, having lived in rebellion against God, if the Lord was righteous without mercy, we wouldn't have a hope in the world. We would have no expectation of favor anymore. All would be utterly lost for you and me. All that would be left for us would be hell and judgment and destruction. That's all. But God is good. That That changes everything. Flowing from his goodness, he has extended remarkable mercy toward us. Now, in the days that we're reading about here, there was this Tremendous token of God's mercy, even by the fact that Israel are back in the promised land. They have this revived hope. The foundation of the temple is being laid again. It all emphasizes God is good. He is merciful. Look what he's done to restore us again. How good he is. Well, God has shown his mercy to you and me in even more explicit ways. Especially through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we have defiled ourselves or rebelled against heaven, God took it upon himself to deal with our sin. All that he might forgive us. Such is the goodness of God that he's loved us even when we were unlovable. And in love he has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. In love Christ has laid down his life as the perfect sacrifice upon the cross. He has taken our place. He has died the death that we deserve. And all because God is good. His mercy endures forever. Such is his mercy that he's pleased to look upon the sacrifice of Christ and to forgive us and to renew us in his sight. What a reason we've got today to come before God with praise and with thankfulness. To recognize, yes, I I am of myself sinful. Yes, I have defied God and made myself guilty. But Lord, praise God, you are good Your mercies endure, even to me. And what a comfort that because God is good, his mercies do endure forever. That's what Israel are praising the Lord for here. His mercies are forever. You know, even for we who are saved by grace, how how we need mercy that endures forever. You know, today as we come before the Lord again, we, we might feel our own sinfulness, our faults and failures But God is still good, and his mercies continue to endure. So as Lamentations 3.22 says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Now have you come unto God in faith? Have you taken Christ as your Savior so that you might receive of the enduring mercies of the good God. The Lord is not some cruel tyrant. He is good. And in love, he stands ready to pardon all of our sin. He stood in that day to renew the people of God. In the book of Ezra here, he he stood that day to renew the temple that had fallen. And likewise, he stands ready to renew you and me who have torn ourselves down by our own sin. He stands ready to make you once again alive in his sight. And for we who know the mercies of God, praise God that they continue. And today he continues to renew and to revive and to restore and to build up all who look to him. 
May his goodness and mercy be the fuel for our praise. What a reason we have to be a, a thankful, a praising people. God is good. His mercies endure forever. Now we're thinking about the response of praise and thanksgiving as the temple foundation was laid. We thought about the, the primary reason behind that praise, but then can I also highlight the enthusiasm in Israel's praise, that there was nothing half-hearted about the people of God that day. Verse 11 says that all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. The first thing to notice perhaps is just the the participation of the people. Such was the enthusiasm that there was pretty much universal participation. Verse 11 says that all the people shouted. All the people joined in. This was an activity in which all could participate and an activity in which all should participate. Well, when it comes to us, recipients of the mercies of God in Christ, for we who trust him, is there any of us who doesn't have good cause to join in and to praise the Lord? In fact, let's face it, even even if you don't know Christ, you've still got plenty of reason to join in and praise the Lord. Because he's been so good, he's given all sorts of common mercies, and he still extends the gospel invitation to you. You know, one of the great crimes of man is the fact that after we've received so much from God, we fail to worship him and to return the praise that is due to his name. Romans 1 21 through 25 speaks about the guilt of mankind in that instead of glorifying our God and and responding to his goodness with thankfulness, like we ought, instead we turn and we we worship and serve the creature more than the creator. This is part of our guiltiness, this failure to be thankful and to praise the God who has been so good. Every one of us has received bountifully from God and every one of us has reason to praise his name. The enthusiasm of Israel's praise was, was seen in the participation of all the people. They all joined together. All the people shouted with a great shout. That leads us to point out the other thing, that the enthusiasm of the people was seen in the noise that was produced. <coughs> Verse 11 says that all the people shouted with a great shout. That word shouted, it just refers to the people making a great noise. It's not that they were shouting out in the middle of the singing. It's that the the singing was marked by this volume, by this loud enthusiasm. It It was marked by energy and by volume. And what volume there must have been. It wasn't just that they shouted, but they shouted with a great shout. Verse 12 also emphasizes that many shouted aloud for joy. Uh, the end of verse 13 says that the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off. So one of the things that's really driven home over and over again in these verses is that this was not just some dreary worship service where people mumbled a few things under their breath. No, there was this loud volume. There was this enthusiasm in the hearts of the people and coming out of the mouths of the people as God's name was lifted up. What an impact it must have had on the surrounding community, even on the foreign peoples living uh, nearby. As they heard the chorus of Israel's praise, it was heard afar off. And did Israel not have every reason to sing out 
with enthusiasm and to quite literally lift their voices and lift their hearts onto God. See, God is good. He has done great things for us. Let us sing unto his name. That's, that's their thinking. You know, our worship services and our lives, I suppose, but especially our worship services should be marked by enthusiastic um, praise of the Lord. Enthusiastic singing, perhaps. I know that we're not all skilled singers and we might be self-conscious of our voices and so on. But should our praise not be marked with this genuine enthusiasm? And I should stress, we're not just talking about outward volume. It's very possible to sing out loudly because you're a confident singer and yet to still have a cold heart. You can sing out very loudly and go through the hymns and so on and your heart's barely contemplating what you're singing and you're barely rejoicing in your soul. Certainly we're to have hearts that are gripped with the goodness of God. And they should be. Such is the goodness of God. There's enough there to grip our hearts and to excite us. We should be excited at the mercies that God has extended to us in Christ. We should be thrilled that God, the mighty one, has stretched out his loving arms to save the hopeless. That he, that he has stretched out his arm to lift us from the miry clay. And to elevate us and to set us with stable feet upon a rock, upon Christ. We should be thrilled. We should be rejoicing in these themes of the gospel. What Christ has done for sinners such as us, that, that he has loved us even unto death, facing the cross that we might have life. It should warm our hearts. And that, that should, it should show in our praise and in our thanksgiving, in our singing even. Of course, the, the bigger question than just volume from the lips is, do you have a heart to praise the Lord? And if not, well then, why not? Do you not grasp how good he is? Do you not grasp what wonderful things he's done for us? And if your heart is cold and fairly unexcited in worship, lift up, lift up your eyes again and see who your God is. Recognize who we're dealing with. Recognize who this is that we're approaching today. He is good. His mercies endure forever. Look at his goodness and his mercy expressed in Christ. Behold him and Surely there's sufficient in him to warm your heart and to give you enthusiasm to praise. So we've spent most of our time thinking about the praise of Israel, their thanksgiving. We also need to notice that that wasn't the only response as the temple foundation was laid. There was also the response of lament. The response of lament. Verse 12 speaks about some of the people who, when the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice. To be clear, these were not tears of joy. I'm sure there were some tears of joy that day, but these were not tears of joy. Verse 12 contrasts this weeping with the joyful noises of others. And such was the noise that people couldn't necessarily make out the difference. But there was a marked difference between these two categories. There were some who responded with joy and with praise and with thankfulness. Others responded with tears, with lament, with sadness. Uh, who were these people responding with lament and with sorrow? Well, it was the ancient men that had seen the first house according to verse 12. It's the older generation. It's the people who were around all those years ago when the temple was first destroyed. And, and why do they weep? 
I mean, this is an exciting moment. The temple foundations are being laid again. Why are they weeping? Well, the major clues come from the prophets, from Haggai, Zechariah, who were ministering around that time. Uh, Specifically in Haggai 2 and verse 3, the prophet was addressing these people. And he said, who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? There's the problem. Those who remembered the glorious temple of Solomon's day, they're looking at this new foundation that's laid and it just seems that it isn't on the same scale in terms of grandeur. In Zechariah 4, 9 and 10, Zechariah highlighted this foundation which had been laid and then he challenged the people, who hath despised the day of small things? That's how it felt to these, this older generation. It seems like this is a time of small things. You know, it's, it's good to be home and back in the promised land. It's good to be building the temple again, but it's just not the same as it used to be. That's the problem. Now, first of all, I want to think about the appropriateness of that lament. On one level, it's worth recognizing that what was going on in the hearts of that older generation was appropriate enough. You know, they were, they were there all those years before, and they knew the grandeur that used to mark the people of God. They, far more than the younger generation, they really could appreciate just how costly the nation's sin and rebellion had been. The younger generation didn't know the same, what had been lost. They had stories of past days, but they hadn't seen it. They didn't know, really, what had been lost. They couldn't really appreciate it all. This generation can. They they realize just how costly sin and rebellion has been. Now, now there could well be something also of that age-old problem where people live in the past, where They always think back to the glory days and they they live as if there's nothing left to rejoice in in the present. Of course, that's not a healthy thing. Often often recognize that we do usually look back with rose-tinted glasses at the past. The past becomes more glorious in our memory than it actually was in practice. But even if there's something of that going on here, this generation is undoubtedly aware of what has been lost through the nation's sin. They saw the new foundation being laid. It didn't look as grand as the previous temple did. And there was room for grief over past sin. There was room for tears over the wrongs that had been done and the costliness of it all. You know, whenever we come to worship, there there is room for lament. There is room to express our grief in the presence of God. Sometimes we think of worship as entirely a joyful experience and there's certainly reason for great joy it is also appropriate at times for there to be lament you know some of us are very aware of our own folly and how maybe we have lost out with God maybe even to a great degree and as God would perhaps restore your heart and draw you back to himself there there could well be, be reason to grieve past sins and to lament before the Lord I mean Open the book of Psalms and you'll see so many. And remember, this is, if you like, the songbook of the Old Testament. There's so many are given over to lament, to, to expressing grief and sorrow before the Lord. Sometimes it's not only appropriate, but it's important. 
to grieve our sins before God. You know, even for a Christian, we, we recognize that our sin, it's forgiven in Christ, and we can be joyful in the Savior, and we should be. It doesn't mean that we ever take our sin lightly. It doesn't mean that we should be flippant about what our sin has cost us. And uh, maybe today, you do need to lament before God in the quietness of your heart to recognize maybe, maybe this past week, maybe this past month, or, or maybe these past years, God has been good. And he was ready to draw near and to bless me, but but I've neglected him for too long and I've lost out. And that's a tragedy. It's something to be lamented. I've lost out. If that's the case, I'd encourage you, pour out your heart before the Lord. Confess your sin. Grieve the loss that there's been. All of that is appropriate. Often, it's even important. But to get the balance here, Let me finish by pointing out the mistake in their lament. On one level, I say it's appropriate. They're grieving the loss through their own sin, how they've missed out with God, how they've brought trouble their their own way. But there's also a, a mistake in this lament. This older generation are weeping because the temple foundation is nothing in their eyes compared to the old structure that had been torn down. They wept, maybe feeling like the glory of past days would never be recovered. It just didn't look anywhere anywhere near the same. But in that, if they felt like the glory wouldn't be recovered, they were utterly wrong. I mentioned earlier Haggai in chapter 2. Haggai addressed this kind of feeling among the people. You know, who is left among you? You saw the house in her first glory. How do ye see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Does it not look to you as if it's nothing compared to the previous temple? But Haggai went on and he encouraged Zerubbabel, the leader. He encouraged Joshua, the high priest. He encouraged the people. He reassured them with the word of God in verses 7 through 9 of Haggai 2. God says, I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. In this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. The basic point God was making was that he would yet do great things even through this seemingly poorer temple. It might look like nothing in the eyes of the people. They might be weeping. The glory is gone. It's, it's in the past. And, and yes, there's some rebuilding, but it's just not what it used to be. But God says, I'm going to fill this house with my glory. I'm going to elevate it so that its glory exceeds the glory of Solomon's temple. And you know, God did exactly that. He did it when Jesus Christ set foot in this new temple. Christ didn't enter into the the temple that Solomon built, at least not physically in the flesh. God's glory was seen in this new temple. In the person of Christ, when God in the flesh was there. Think of that triumphant day when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on the ass's colt and the people are praising, save now, Hosanna. And he comes right to this temple. And over the next week, he spends time in the temple courtyards and he's answering his critics and he's showing his glory and he's proclaiming the good news. And it was from that general area where he's taken and arrested and crucified. And as he dies, the veil of this new temple was torn from top to bottom. And it signifies gloriously that the way is opened up for sinners to come unto God. All of this is happening with 
the new temple being built. Here are the people in the days of Zerubbabel, and what they are doing seems like a small and insignificant thing. It's nothing like the glory of the past. God's people are grieved at it. Oh, how our sin has cost us. Appropriate to a point. But the big mistake was to forget God is still good. God's mercies still continue to endure forever. And therefore his promises will be fulfilled, his work will be done, sin will be dealt with, and they still have reason to rejoice. Now today it might well be appropriate to lament your sin in the presence of God, to lament how costly it's been in your life. If you haven't been walking with God for some time, if you've been cold at heart, by all means, lament the loss. There has been loss. Lament it. But don't lament to the point of despair. Don't lament to the point of utter discouragement. Rather, lament as needed, but with faith that lifts your eyes upward and beholds your God, that beholds Christ and all that's been done for you, and recognize that your God is good. His mercy endures. He can restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. His mercies endure forever. And therefore, even when you've lost out through sins of the past, you can safely today cast yourself again upon the mercies of God and with joy you'll fall into his mighty hand and he is able to raise you up. Maybe lament the past, but don't let it paralyze you. Turn with gladness to God, trusting this glorious Christ, taking hold of the gospel encouragements. You'll have every reason to rejoice, to respond with praise and with thanksgiving because God is good. His mercy endureth forever. Let's bow together in prayer.